This morning, we're back into uh, the epistle of James, so find your Bibles as we get started this morning. As you uh, are aware, we are in the thick of uh, commercial season, right? It's the, it's the onslaught of Christmas advertisements, and everyone's trying to sell you their stuff. And you have a list of people to shop for, it seems, and, and these people know it. And the most powerful motivations for the consumer to purchase their item is the promise that what you're about to buy will, in fact, work. And that's really what drives it, right? Will it, will it work? That's the question. Does, does it do what it promises that it says it will do? Will, will the new electronic device that promises to call home to your relatives far away through a screen, will it work? I mean, the commercials look like it, it works flawlessly, clear screen, loud, it looks amazing. But will it work when you bring it home to your house? This is true for consumers purchasing items. Uh, that, and we believe that when we buy it, it will work for us. And that's at least our hope. But is this true also for those that shop for religion, for church, for faith? Will that church work for them? People want a church that they want a faith that is effective, that, that works. And the criteria varies quite a bit in that way. Some want a faith that removes any sense of guilt whatsoever. So if a church talks about sin, they don't want to be there. Uh, or a faith that brings comfort at all times. And they want what works, a church that many feel needs to be fun, a faith that is easy, enjoyable, no pressure. Some choose a church based upon how it works for them. Will this church, will this faith really, even outside of the church, work for me? Will it do what I want it to do? Will it work for me? They, they want this Christian faith that way. This morning we come back to the book of James and we come to one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. One of the most difficult passages to preach. One of the most misunderstood passages James discusses what true faith is. And I don't want you to be confused on what we're going to look at this morning, so I'm going to give you the theme, really, what I'm driving at. James is going to say that while faith alone saves us, it's a faith of a certain kind, a biblical faith. It's not just any faith. That's his argument. It's a faith which produces works, and it's that faith that saves us, but it's shown in our works. And so if you received an outline as you came in, here it is. If you didn't, Three points, first, useless faith, second, saving faith, third, faith and works. Three points there as we walk through, so hopefully that prepares you. If you haven't already, turn to James chapter 2, and as Ryan mentioned, please feel free to use the Bibles that are there, and uh, if you're using those Bibles, it's on page 951, and we're going to look at James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, so follow with me as I read. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. He's complimenting him here. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith, by faith alone. And in that same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pray that God blesses his word this morning. Would you pray with me? I encourage you to pray for me as I preach, and I'll pray for you as you listen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again and we ask, we beg that you would help your people here this morning to understand your truth, to understand your word, that you would give them um, clarity as I speak, that they would see and understand and be able to apply this weighty passage. You give wisdom and the understanding to not only take this passage and understanding mentally, but to apply it to their life and to to live it out, that they would come away different this morning um, from listening to your word preached to them. And may you receive all the honor and glory for, for what happens here this morning. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So number one, useless faith, verses 14 through 19. What does faith look like? If you were to describe faith what words would you use? Are there even different types of faith? Well, what is real faith? This is the question that James is seeking to answer as he continues. Remember, he's dealing with the Jewish church that had been thrown around the Mediterranean and displaced, forgotten, even mistreated. They're both rich people and poor people in this group, as James shows us. Earlier, he talked about the lowly brother and the rich brother, as we saw in chapter 1. There are those that seek to impress the rich that we looked at last week, dressed in fine clothes that we, we, we saw, and those that just neglect the poor. And James comes back to this even later in chapter 5 of the rich and how they take advantage of the poor, stealing from them, defrauding them. And it seems we come to the second half of chapter 2, and he's focusing in on those that have come to the conclusion that faith is just what you think. There's an element of truth here, though. Faith and belief must have a cognitive element to it. What sets us apart from everything else in the world is that humans think, and, and much of believing is something, and believing in something is tied up with thinking thoughts. And here we have James teaching us about faith and taking it a step further than just thinking. It's dangerous, though, for you to sit here for 45 minutes or longer for a sermon, and because you listened well, and understood what the preacher said, you believe that you've moved closer to God. Obviously, I want our people to understand what is preached from the pulpit, and I work hard every week to communicate in a way that helps you as a hearer, but my main goal isn't primarily that your knowledge is, is puffed up on a given subject. The goal of preaching is to affect the mind, but also affect the heart. I'm even more concerned that we take the word from this place and apply it to our lives when we leave. So if all you do is 
listen to sermons or read Christian books and come away smarter yet unchanged, then you've bought the lie that faith is only something that you think. James is here this morning to undo you. And he's blunt. And he says things in this passage to grab your attention because it's more than just what you think. And he's plain and simple. And so James begins this section with two rhetorical questions. This is a new break in his arguments from what faith looks like in the life of a believer. And he says there in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith, can that faith save him? This one that James describes has a belief that faith is only, only something that I think. And, and friends, fake faith is easy. Anyone can say they have it, especially those that see the, the worthiness of their works to earn salvation. They say, I have faith. Salvation is by faith alone. Still, it's not just any faith that saves, for justifying faith puts its trust in what God has revealed in his word and should not be confused with just an, a mental assent. Faith is a gift God gives to his own, and all obedience flows from faith, so that the faith is the root of one's relationship to God. But friends, faith is never an isolated reality. John Calvin has said, and listen, you need to write this down. We are justified by faith alone, and yet the faith that justifies is never alone. I'll say it again if you're taking notes. Even if you're not taking notes, write it down. We are justified by faith alone, yet the faith that justifies is never alone. Too many of you looked at me while I was saying that. Are you not writing it down? Do I need to say it a third time? Good, I will. We are justified by faith alone. And yet the faith that justifies is never alone. James is directly talking to those who have given up the Christian life of obedience. They couldn't do it their own way, anyhow, so, so they, they give up and declare, I trusted Christ at one time, I'm, I'm good. I got the certificate. And James says, your declaration of faith without the evidence of fruit is a worthless declaration. James asks, what good, what profit is it if that one doesn't have any works with their faith? He's asking, is your faith employed? Obviously, James is expecting a negative answer to this question here. The faith that they say that they have is different than biblical faith. Robertson asks, one commentary, he says, how can a man know that he has any faith? The mere assertion is all one has at first. In the beginning, the claim to faith is accepted, but the life must confirm the claim if people are to believe it. God can read the heart, but even God demands that the outward life reflect the inward heart, the change that God brings. Let me ask you a question. It's a real hard one. How do you know that an apple tree is an apple tree? I told you it was a hard one. How do you know? I'm sorry, what? This is like a charismatic outpouring here. Because of what? The fruit, right? So you move into a new house and you see a tree and the season comes and I don't know how this works. Someone else smarter than me, high school students that are studying this. 
and it, and it develops an apple, you can say, look, it's an apple tree because there's fruit. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. He says, you know them by their fruit. He's, he's saying all genuine believers, all Christians are known for their fruit. Doesn't mean everyone produces fruit the same way or as much, but you see the fruit. And James, being a caring and loving pastor, brings this illustration to verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister, part of the body, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? A brother, sister, a believer, part of the church comes and says they have a need. They lack their daily food is what he's saying. Their basic needs are not being met. And he says all that these people do is say, shalom, peace be to you. And they don't help them. They don't recognize their needs. They want them out of sight and out of mind. James says, is this your type of faith? If this is your type of faith, this isn't from Jesus. Talk is cheap. Faith, real faith, takes risks. Do you have real faith? One way to understand our faith in God is to look at how we deal with those that we live around. An old Puritan, Thomas Watson, said, words are cheap, compliments cost nothing. Will you serve God with what costs nothing? Words are but a cold kind of pity. The stomach is not filled with words, but meat, nor is the back clothed with good wishes. Is your faith useful? Is your faith real? Is your faith actually a saving faith? Is it a living faith? Is it employed? You're rich in this world, whether you know it or not. How are you using your wealth? Some of you are rich in financial wealth. Do you joyfully and easily share what God has blessed you with for those that have need in our church family? Some of you are rich in energy wealth. Do you look for ways to happily serve others that are unable to take care of their own needs? Some of you are rich in time wealth. Some single people here, do you share your wealth with older people in our church who perhaps need a ride to church or even helping those young families that have run out of time and energy? You're not off the hook there, family. Some of you are rich in relationship wealth because your family's big. And as young families or older families, you have a bunch of kids and all these relationships in your home and you're full of these relationships. You're wealthy in relationships do you share your richness with a single person who has to work so that they don't be alone? See, these are just a few tangible ways to display the realness of your faith to the church family that you're part of. The abundance of the one is designed in the economy of God for the need of the other. Do you see that? God designed it this way so that things balance out. The abundance of the one is designed in the economy of God for the need of the other. That's how a family works. James is not done and neither am I. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He is pushing buttons here. He's trying to get our attention. This is where you come across to the brother who knows a lot of doctrine, loves to lecture others all about what he knows and what they need to know, but his heart is all dry and crusty and he uses doctrine as a club to beat you down and to hurt you into submission. This is where pride is built. It's, it's rooted in how much of the Bible, much of the Bible they know, but no real love for God. No real love for people. They just know a lot. And James says to them, so what? Faith that is real, that's alive, that's saving and not dead. You know, dead things can't do anything, right? Can they? A dead faith is an engine without any fuel. Some essential components are there, but it's not going anywhere. Rich Mullins has a song about this. Do you guys know who Rich Mullins is? Raise your hand if you know Rich Mullins. Okay, the rest of you need to get saved. <laughs> Rich Mullins. His song says, faith without works, it's like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. Mm. <laughs> Song's called Screen Door. You can Google it later. A song you can't sing. What torture that would be. Screen door in a submarine. That's, that's faith in connection to the outwork, the, the realness of that faith. Faith without works. Well, how did Jesus line up with this? Jesus didn't merely preach about faith. He served and healed and helped and died to show us what Christian faith is all about. There has to be vitality to your faith. Having faith in God isn't seen with just the way you think. It has to be living. If your faith is dead, it won't bear any fruit. Dead things don't grow. Dead things don't reproduce. But living things do. So what kind of faith do you have? James wants to show you what type of faith you have. And he's going to be very blunt here now as we get to verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. This is a compliment. Okay? You have to understand that because the next phrase, even the demons believe and shudder. And this is a negative illustration here. This, this should, sh should shock you to think about yourself. Cause you to think. He's, he's showing us that it is possible to have faith, to have belief in God, but that faith not be a real faith, a saving faith. Came across a sermon this week by Jonathan Edwards from the middle of the 1800s. And it was just on this verse, verse 19. And it is an entitled, True Grace Distinguished from the Experience of Devils. Man, they don't name sermons like that anymore. I need to step up my game. And Edwards in the sermon doesn't pull any punches when he preached it. He says, let me show you two things demons have that are fine. They are good. They are, they are wonderful, even these things, he says. But I want you to see that you can have them also and still just be a demon. And what are those two things? He says, first, first of all, they have sound doctrine. And this is where it gets scary for a good Bible church like us. He says, 
You believe God is one, excellent, so do the demons. Demons have been to the absolute best and greatest Bible college seminary in all the universe. They have been to the heaven of heavens. They have been to the throne room of God. They know more sound doctrine that you could ever read in your lifetime. They know more about God than you will ever learn in the years that you will spend on earth. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is good, right? We, we want our cheap people in church to know sound doctrine. Okay? Well, then Edward says, get all the knowledge you can. Get the accuracy you can. That's fine. But you have to realize that having that doesn't necessarily qualify to be anything more than just a demon. Does that hurt yet? That you can, have, you can be a demon and have all the sound doctrine. But then Edwards goes one step further because James goes one step further in the text. The demons believe that and they shudder. And this is where Edwards really comes close to us. He says the demons shudder. Edward says, do you see? They, they don't just believe this. They respect the power of God. They respect the greatness of God. They're scared of God. They know what he can do. They move about. They spend their time and energy based upon what they know about God. Have you read about the demons in the Gospels? Just in the Gospel of Luke this week. How do they respond to Jesus? They're not cavalier towards Jesus. They fear him. They tremble at Jesus. And they even acknowledge Jesus' complete and absolute authority over them. Go read the Gospels. Every time they come in contact with Jesus, they know exactly who he is and exactly what he can do. And they tremble every time. But they don't worship. They know that salvation is by God's grace through faith, that Jesus died. They know this. They know that Jesus was buried. They know this. They know that Jesus was raised to atone for the sins of mankind, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. They know this. They know that Satan was defeated at the cross. They know this. They know quite well that Jesus will return again to earth. They know that there is a literal hell. And they don't worship him. See, there's nothing wrong with having the right thoughts about who God is. We should have correct doctrine. You should have right thoughts about God. But that doesn't mean that you have genuine faith. It doesn't mean that you have a living and real and saving faith. A person who has saving faith will have these things, but there are many people who have right thoughts and their faith is dead. And there will be many on that day who will stand before God and think that they are saved because of what they know. They thought that faith was only something that you think. But there was no change in their lives because they had a dead faith. They had a faith just like demons. Do you call yourself a Christian? How do you know that your faith is real? Sound theology is important, but that's where the demons stop. 
They don't go any further than that. They know God and they tremble, but their faith is dead. It's, it's not living. It's not saving. So what is saving faith? Well, that leads to my second point. Saving faith. There is no inoperative faith. The purpose of James is to goad his readers to recognize and accept their need for living an active faith and to challenge them to test their own faith by the basic um, criteria that faith without works is useless. James says in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is wanting to bring a strong argument for those that believe they can just believe something and do nothing. Their faith is really not genuine at all. James uses two people to illustrate the necessity of working out their faith to prove that their, their life following God is, is demonstrated. First was Abraham. And who would question the, the father of faith, right? Who would question Abraham? The father of all who believe, Paul says in Romans. So James says in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. When James uses the life of Abraham, he's most definitely showing us that he is not here to contradict Paul. One of Paul's favorite verses is Abraham in, in Genesis 15, 6. God's promise to Abraham that he will have an offspring, and that and it, the response is, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is the passage above all other passages that Paul uses to base the doctrine of justification on. And he says, Abraham was justified. He was reckoned righteous. He was declared righteous by faith. Now, it's interesting that James would, would quote that very verse here in, in chapter 2, verse 23. But look at what he's doing. He's saying that the scripture in Genesis 15, 6 was fulfilled when? Look back at verse 21. Was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Oh, okay. All right, James. Now, when did that happen? It didn't happen in Genesis 15. It didn't happen before Genesis 15. It happened seven chapters later, many years later, after Genesis 15, 6. Now, now you need to understand that James is not a dummy here, Okay. He knows the scriptures. He knows that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 22. And I don't mean that he knew the chapters. They didn't have chapters then. But he knew that one passage came before the other. He also knows that his readers aren't dummies either. That they know that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 22. So why does he say that? Because the story of Isaac demonstrates the trueness of the faith that Abraham expressed so many years before. And had been counted righteous according to it. So James and Paul are not contradicting each other. But while we're talking about it, and talking about Paul, look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, if you have read Romans, and you're trying to understand how this verse fits. Paul says we are justified by faith alone, not by what we do. James says we're justified by what we do, but not by faith that is alone. There you have it. It's the end of church. It's the end of Christianity. We need to pack it up. I guess we're done. Right? Just close the doors and move on. People say that all the time. Look, 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 the Bible contradicts itself. You can't trust the Bible, they say. And I won't keep you in suspense, but they're wrong. James is not contradicting Paul. 
You know, if you only look through, uh, look at things with one eye. Have you ever done that before? As a kid, you kind of, you're bored in class, maybe. Sorry, teachers. And it changes. And you do that, you lose depth perception. You cover one eye and switch your hand around. You, things look different. You're lacking depth perception to understand it. You need two eyes looking at the same object to have depth perception. And in the same way, James is looking at the same gospel from a slightly different perspective than Paul. He's not supplementing it all. He's writing this book to a specific audience. And guess what? Paul was writing his book to a specific audience. Paul, who needed to oppose the popular notion that sinners can be saved by good works. James was combating the misconception that believers can dispense with works altogether. Paul was dealing with people who wanted to make sanctification part of their basis for, for justification. Where James was dealing with people who wanted to be justified without being sanctified. And the difference is that in Paul's case is that God declares the believers righteous. Where James's case is that the believers works that show him to be righteous. Proving his faith to be genuine. And it always comes back to the faith of the believer. Remember the quote that I asked you to write down? I'll say it again. We are justified by faith alone, and yet the faith that justifies is never alone. You know, James is using the word justified in a somewhat different way that Paul uses it. Words have their original meaning, and then they have a more common usage, like the word awful in English. How do we use that word today? It means something's terrible. But that's not what the word meant when it came out. The original meaning of the word awful meant to be full of awe. Makes sense, right? They're related, but they're not quite the same. The original word justified, it means to make yourself right, to be made right. Therefore, literally, if you justify something, you are making it right. Like if you have a, a debt and you go and pay the debt off, you have made yourself right with the creditor. But the word justified can also mean then and now to prove yourself right. Example, if I say to you, justify that statement, what am I saying? I'm not saying make that statement true. No, that's not it. What I'm saying to you is demonstrate that your statement is true. Prove it to me. Give me evidence that your statement is true. Show me. I'm not saying make that statement true. It's the same thing with the word justified. When Paul says we're justified by faith, he means that we cannot be made right with God except through the work of Jesus Christ and the merits of Jesus Christ. We cannot make ourselves right on our own. It has to be done through Jesus. So when James says that we are justified by works, he means that our, our works are there to prove, to display, to show we are right with God. And Paul would say the same thing. When Paul says you are justified by faith alone, he's saying you are made right with God only through the work of Jesus Christ. When James says you are justified not by faith alone, but also by works, he's saying a mere profession of faith isn't enough to prove that you're really right with God. You have to show that faith. It has to be displayed. And God's, God has possessors of life not professors of life. And furthermore, faith itself doesn't constitute our righteousness as if faith itself is our righteousness. No, it's what our faith is in. That brings salvation. 
Faith is the instrument by which we are united with Christ, who is our righteousness. Believers are justified then because they are united with Christ. He is our righteousness. Faith saves because of its object, because we put trust in the blood of Jesus Christ to satisfy the wrath of God. And justifying faith puts its faith in Jesus Christ as the high priest who gave his life as atonement for sin. So if your faith is weak, it's because, friends, the, the, you don't know the object of your faith well enough. You need to read. You need to study and learn about the object of your faith. And who is the object of your faith? Jesus Christ. So if you find that your faith is weak, you need to read more of the word of God. That faith-stimulating word of God teaches you who Jesus is and what Jesus did. See, James is not saying you're saved by works no matter what the Catholic Church says. And just look earlier in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? They forget that verse when they come to verse 24. Do you know the difference between wages and an heir? Let me be clear because James assumes it here, okay? And if you don't see this, if you don't understand this, you will, like the Catholic Church, come away with false doctrine. Wages come to you because of something you do. Inheritance comes to you because of, of, of what you are. Wages come through efforts, through your work. Inheritance comes because of the relationship you have. Wages come after you're, you've done something, after you've performed, but inheritance is money already in the bank. Wages come one little bit to the next little bit. They're not in the bank until you have completed the work, the week, the month. But listen, inheritance is already there. It's guaranteed. It's money in the bank. And James is preaching to us to remind us yet again, you are not earning our salvation. We're heirs of salvation. There's a huge difference here, friends. Do you see it? He is absolutely saying we're saved by grace alone. And when you become a Christian, you become an heir of God. That means you have been adopted into the family of God. You become an heir of our wealthy God who is now your father. And this is why we always should have something to rejoice over as a Christian. You remember who you were before Christ saved you? You should always have praise for God. He is your father and we are his child. You are an heir. Not because you did anything. All because of Christ. And any possibility and opportunity you have in your life to share prayer requests or share praise, friends, if you can't think anything, you need to go back to the gospel. Remind yourself yet again of who you once were and now who you are. We should always be able to share praise and adoration to our God. All because of Christ. And if you need any further proof that God doesn't save superstars, just normal sinners like us, look at verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. 
I love that James includes Rahab here. Friends, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Rahab is here in a few other places in the New Testament, and she comes from a horrific background. She was a prostitute. No little girl dreams of being a prostitute. You become that because of very wicked and evil and demonic things that happen to you. You're used and abused and treated like a commodity, like a soulless recreational vehicle. You get trapped. And this is Rahab. She's in Jericho, used and abused. I mean, women are already treated as second-class citizens, and she's worse. And here's Rahab, and she's a believer in God. She didn't learn about God from her parents. She's not living in a city that worshiped God. Her ability to know God was more of a very slim opportunity, and yet she hears about God and he gives faith for her to believe and to trust in this God. She believed with far less testimony, far less evidence before her. So how will you be able to excuse your own persistent unbelief? She had much less. The most certain unlikely person that God would choose and when she hears that spies were there in Joshua, she, she hides them and then redirects them. And all the while, putting her faith, her very small faith, into action. God would use her small faith in big ways. I love that Rahab's in this passage. Why? Because I believe this is happening right now, perhaps in our church. Perhaps you're sitting here worried that you haven't given and accomplished this list of work to do to show your faith. And here's Rahab and her simple step in obedience and faith that God had given her. She hides the spies. She had an active faith. You know, she didn't decide when she became to believe in God that she'd be a hero. No, she just was faithful in the mundane parts of life. And where do we find Rahab and other parts of the New Testament? But in the very lineage of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here this morning, she's part of your family. The family of God. You will worship with her one day. All because her faith was active. Engaged in serving God. See, saving faith isn't just a, a mental assent to some truths. It's a faith in Jesus Christ that is engaged in service to him. Well, third and, and last and briefly, the third point, faith and works. James ends the chapter with the final illustration, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The first word, therefore, connects to verse 25 in the story of Rahab, her justifying faith expressed in action. Creed and conduct cannot be separated any more than the, than the body can be separated from its very life breath and still be called alive. A corpse is not a living body. And James sums up his old argument with this final statement. The relationship between faith and works is like that between the body and its breath. 
If your faith has no works, then it is mere profession and you have reason to question it. And you should. And it's God's grace to you this morning to bring you to this passage that you would ask him, God, show me. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Do you call yourself a Christian? How do you know that your faith is real? Does your life display any transformation? Not perfection, friends, but a transformation. Your life, is it characterized in trust of God and obedience towards God and his word? What about when obedience is costly? What do you do then? What do you do when God calls you to befriend the lonely when you are the most popular and everyone wants to be around you? What then? When God calls you to be single, when all you want to do is to be married, what then? When God calls you to marriage, when all you want to do is bail on your marriage vows, when God calls you to purity, when all you want to do is indulge in lust, what then? When God calls you to sobriety, when you just want to unwind and relax from a tough week, when God calls you to submit, when all you want to be is in control, when God calls you to sacrifice your dreams, when you just rather pursue them, what then? Perhaps when God calls you to move 3,000 miles away from family, to absorb the scorn of those that think you have abandoned them in a pursuit to follow God, what then? What will you do? This is where the rubber meets the road, friends. Is your faith active? Is it alive? How do you know if you have real faith, saving faith? One author shares a story about a boy walking home with a bucket of honey. The bucket had a small hole in it, and the boy repeatedly wiped the drops from the hole with his finger and ate it. A man asked him, son, what is it you have there? A bucket of honey, the boy replied. Is it good honey, the man queried? Oh, yes, very good. After a while, the man asked the boy how he knew it was so good. He says, here, said the boy, pointing to a drop just about to fall from the hole. Taste for yourself. Friends, this is the message of James. Taste and see that your faith is living and vibrant and active. And just like us as humans, it's kind of like that bucket with honey. Not always flowing out in large amounts, but little drops to taste and see that this faith is real. If you're here this morning and afraid that you're not doing enough for salvation, then you haven't fully understood what Christ has done for you. If you're, if you're to have a living and active faith, you have to remember that you are spiritually poor. You have to go back to verse 5. And remind yourself that you're part of the God's family, not because of work, but because of an inheritance. 
from the king. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for rest. Rock of ages, cleft for me. You see, real faith, living and active faith happens right in the middle of life. The daily choice to follow God instead of ourselves. Real faith is not idle. Real faith is not self-employed. Real faith is willing to risk. It doesn't always take the safe route. It isn't always the safe bet. Rahab risked a lot to hide those spies. Her faith was fully employed. Abraham was willing to risk everything by taking Isaac to that mountain. All of this was happening right in the middle of life. God didn't let Abraham sacrifice Isaac on that hill. He provided a substitute in his place. But it was just a temporary substitute. Many years later, he sent his own son once and for all to prove, to justify himself that God could be trusted. And on Calvary, friends, God didn't hold back anything from us. He willingly gave us salvation through Jesus' sacrifice and blood for us on the cross. He did this for his enemies. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to prove, to justify that he is in fact all that he said he was. And for whoever would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, they would be called, get this, they would be called a friend of God. Just like Abraham was. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. We can be friends with God. It's an amazing truth. A friend is someone you love for who they are, not what they do. You live for that relationship. And at the end of Edward's sermon, I mentioned earlier, he ends this by saying, the, de- the demons and the humans who share just the intellectual understanding of God and their faith may have a strong sense of the awesomeness of God. They may have a strong sense of the wisdom of God. They know the vastness and the incredibleness of God. But he says there is one thing that they do not see. They don't see the beauty of God. He says the wicked at the day of judgment will see everything else in Christ but his beauty, his divine loveliness. They don't understand grace. A refusal to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, when you see the beauty of Jesus, you want to live for him. You want your life to please him more than anything else. Faith that is active, faith that is real, is not out of guilt or fear. It's a faith employed out of adoration for the one who bought you, the one who saved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the depth of your word. 
and it teaches us and, and, and leads us to understand who you are and what you've done. And we come to you, God, this morning, and we know that there was much that was covered in this text, but I recognize that there might be one here this morning that is self-deceived into thinking that they are your child. They have fooled themselves. But there's no evidence of living faith. There's never been. And God, I pray that you would awaken their heart, that you would give them the faith to believe and the fruit to prove of what you've done. And for those that are here that are walking with you and struggle to see the continual fruit, Father, give them endurance and strength and encouragement to trust you knowing that you are working in and through them. May your spirit give them peace this morning and strength to live for you in every aspect of our life. Help us, Father, to glorify you more than anything else in the life that you've given us. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.